Hello, and welcome to the podcast for Hope TBI, where you, as our audience, are embraced as hopesters. You can find us at www.hopetbi.com. This is part two of two in a two-part series. This is Sex After Brain Injury and Trauma. The first part of our series is called Sex and Disability, so make sure to listen to that episode as well. Now to get started with Sex After Brain Injury and Trauma. And now for your listening pleasure. Let's begin. Sex after brain injury and trauma. Where does our sexuality come from in our brains? Do you know? It is clear that frontal, especially prefrontal lobe, plays a role in sexual functioning as the cognitive functions are controlled by these areas and are significantly correlated with sexual functioning. The frontal lobe plays a valuable role in a person's ability to plan, organize, emotional and behavior control, personality, problem-solving, attention, social skills, and not only flexible thinking, but also conscious movement. Injury to this area can cause problems such as inappropriate sexual behavior. And not only difficulties with initiating sexual activity or difficulties with motivating oneself to engage in sexual activity, but it can also cause difficulties with experiencing pleasurable and sexual sensations, spontaneity, and the buildup of arousal. Now the temporal lobe plays a role in a person's memory, recognizing faces, for example, generating emotions and language. Injury to this area has been linked to an increase in sexual interest and emotions, also called hyperactive sexuality. And although it can also result in reduced sex drive or hypoactive sexuality, and for some survivors, it can fluctuate back and forth between the two. Some people who have had temporal lobe injury have also been found to develop paraphilias, abnormal sexual interests that can sometimes be dangerous or illegal. Damage to pathways in the frontal and temporal lobes has been linked to difficulties in understanding whether someone else is actually interested in sexual contact. For example, through body language and reading or interpreting emotions. The parietal lobe plays a role in a person's perception, that spatial awareness, manipulating objects and spelling. And in the Wernicke's area, understanding language. And in the Broca's area, expressing language. 
that's where a lot of the damage comes when people have problems with aphasia. Seizures in this part of the brain can cause some brain injury survivors to actually experience sensations in their genitals, including heightened sexual arousal or sensations that are not pleasurable. And sometimes, for some survivors, these sensations can be highly irritating or even painful. The hypothalamus and pituitary gland parts of the brain are responsible for producing hormones in the body that regulate sex drive. Damage to these parts can therefore result in hormonal problems. Now we already know that brain injury is known to cause changes in thinking. It causes changes in behavior, it can cause personality changes and body function, which alter the way a person experiences and expresses their sexuality. Changes to sexual behavior after brain injury, it can include erectile problems, reduced libido, the inability to orgasm, and the reduction in frequency of sex, or the increase in uncontrolled acting out of sexual behaviors. Now, the pituitary gland secretes many different hormones, some of which affect other glands. And the hypothalamus is the brain region that controls the pituitary gland. Some of those other glands that are affected by the pituitary gland is the thyroid gland, which affects metabolism, among other things, the parathyroid, which help regulates your calcium in your blood, your adrenal glands, which help trigger your fight-or-flight responses, the pancreas, which regulates the level of sugar in the blood, ovaries, which secrete female sex hormones, or testes, which secrete male sex hormones. So you can see how when there's damage to the pituitary or hypothalamus, how that can create a ripple effect or a cascade of changes and impact throughout all those other organs. Now we spoke in part one of this two-part series under the sex and disability episode about consent. We're going to expand a little bit more on consent in this episode. Brain injury and consent and respecting boundaries. Now, both cognitive and sexual functioning were found affected post-brain injury or after brain injury. However, less emphasis is given to sexual functioning by the professionals. In fact, you don't even hear it really talked about. Have you ever gone to a provider after your brain injury? or gone in as a caregiver with someone who's had a brain injury and ever heard your provider ask, hey, how's your sex life? How's your libido? Is your sex life still normal? Are you still feeling satisfied? I can tell you that I've never been asked that question by my provider, either before my brain injury or after. 
Sex is not a topic that usually comes up in conversation unless I'm the one specifically bringing it up. It is important for sexual partners, caregivers, and professionals to recognize that brain injury survivors have the same rights as non-disabled people of having their sexual needs met and making their own decisions about their sexuality. Let me repeat that. It's important for sexual partners, caregivers, and healthcare providers, those professionals, to recognize that brain injury survivors or people with disabilities have the same rights as non-disabled people of having their sexual needs met and making their own decisions about their sexuality. So the sexuality of a survivor has to be a conversation. Brain injury is not to blame for a systemic patriarchal culture of violence against women, one in which more than 30% of women are murdered every year and killed by their intimate partners. Now, this is regardless of whether they're a same-sex couple or an opposite-sex couple. But brain injury cannot be removed from that world either, and we should be considering it as an additional risk factor where brain injuries can be caused by domestic violence incidences. That being said, it is important not to engage in sexual activities with someone without their consent. They should not be forced, regardless of gender, sexual identity, or disability. Keep in mind, though, they must also be able to legally consent, so they must be competent and understand what they're consenting to. If a brain injury survivor lacks the capacity and therefore cannot make a safe, informed decision about sex, a best interest decision should be made with the support of the appropriate professionals to ensure that the survivor's sexual needs are being met in their best interests. Now, persons with disabilities are twice more likely to be sexually assaulted than people without a disability, according to the 2017 Bureau of Justice report. But that does not mean that just because a person has a disability that they should not seek a satisfying sexual relationship. So what exactly does legal consent mean anyway? Well, we discussed this a little bit in the part one of this two-part series. But again, we're going to expand on that a little bit more. Basically, sexual consent is actively agreeing to participate in a sexual activity before being sexual with someone. Affirmative consent is when someone agrees, gives permission, or says yes to sexual activity with other persons. Consent is always freely given and all people in a sexual situation must feel that they are able to say yes or no 
or stop the sexual activity at any point. Consent can be withdrawn by either party at any point. No means no. Every time. Consent must be voluntarily given and may not be valid if a person is being subjected to actions or behaviors that elicit emotional, psychological, physical, reputational, financial pressure, or threat, or intimidation, or fear through coercion or force. Consent to engage in one sexual activity or past agreement to engage in a particular sexual activity cannot be presumed or assumed to constitute consent to engage in a different sexual activity or to again engage in a sexual activity. Consent cannot be validly given by a person who is incapacitated. And we talked in the first part of this series about the different types of incapacitation involving intoxication, being unconscious, or asleep. A person with a mental disorder, a low mental age, or under the legal age of sexual consent may willingly engage in a sexual act that still fails to meet the legal threshold for consent as defined by laws. That's why it's important to know what the laws are in your specific state or your specific country. There are different types of consent to consider, and each of them are important to understand. And some will overlap with each other during a sexual encounter. Ongoing consent. Anyone can change their mind about what they are interested in doing at any time. Anyone can change their mind about what they are interested in doing at any time. That is ongoing consent. Then there's informed freely or expressly given consent. Now that's when someone says, yes, I do want to have sex with you. Or yes, I'm willing to participate in that act without pressure or manipulation. Someone who has a clear appreciation and understanding of the facts implications, and future consequences of their action. Clearly and unmistakably stated rather than implied. Now they may agree either orally, out loud, or in writing, or even non-verbally. Then there's specific consent. Specific means saying yes to one act, such as kissing. And just because someone says yes to one act, such as kissing, doesn't mean that you have said yes to other acts like oral sex or intercourse. Just because you have participated in an act previously also does not mean that you grant consent for future acts. So just because I agreed to kiss you right now does not mean that 
you can assume that I've agreed to kiss you any day in the future, unless I've consented to that at that time. Then there's informed consent, where you're not deceiving or lying. For example, if someone says they will use a condom and they don't, that is not full consent. If someone pokes holes in a condom when the agreement is to use a condom, then that is sabotage and that is not full consent. Implied and enthusiastic consent. Now this is about wanting to do something but not feeling like you have to or that you should do something. It's something that's inferred from a person's actions and the facts and circumstances of a particular situation, or in some cases, by a person's silence or inaction. But again, you can't assume consent by silence or inaction. Then there's unanimous consent. General consent that is given by a group of several individuals or several parties where everyone in the party consents to a specific act. And that's, you see that a lot of times in swinging atmospheres or threesomes or orgies. And that's unanimous consent. General consent by a group of several parties where everyone in the party consents to a specific act. Now, how does a brain injury affect sexual functioning? There are a lot of changes that take place secondary to a brain injury. And those changes can take place in men and women alike. Some of those changes can be decreased or increased desire. Many people have less desire or interest in sex after a brain injury. That is what is most common. Some people, though, have the opposite. They have increased interest in sex or become hypersexual after the brain injury. And they may want to have sex more often than usual. Others may have difficulty controlling their sexual behavior and acting out inappropriately. They may make sexual advances in inappropriate situations or make inappropriate sexual comments. You may have heard someone burst out with vocal outbursts randomly with inappropriate statements. Decreased arousal is another sexual function that can change after brain injury. Many people have difficulty becoming sexually aroused. This means that they may be interested in sex. They have a desire mentally to have sex but their bodies do not respond to the touch felt that would normally stimulate sexual arousal. Now, men may have difficulty getting or keeping an erection. Women may have decreased vaginal lubrication or moisture in the vagina or lack of sensation in the clitoral and vulva areas or may they, they may cease to have any sensation or at all, 
with clitoral or vulva stimulation. Difficulty or inability to reach orgasm or climax is another change that can happen secondary to brain injury. Both men and women may have difficulty reaching orgasm or climax. They may not feel physically satisfied after sexual activity. And they may even feel guilty for not being able to come to climax with their partner or to bring their partner to climax. And reproductive changes. Women may experience irregular menstrual cycles or periods. Sometimes periods may not occur for weeks or months after an injury or may stop altogether. And when we're talking about the menstrual cycle or periods, those are also known as menses. They may have trouble getting pregnant and develop signs of infertility. And because of the hormonal and endocrine changes that may be experiencing alongside the brain injury, this can also affect their fertility. Men may have decreased sperm production and may have difficulty getting a woman pregnant. This can create a lot of emotional and mental health changes in not only the survivor, but their partner as well. So we know about consent and we know some of the changes that have taken place. But what causes changes in sexual function after a brain injury? Well, there are many reasons sexual problems happen. Probably more than we'll even list in this episode. But we are going to cover a few of those here. Some are directly related to the damage that happens to the brain itself. Others are related to physical problems or changes in how the person is thinking about sex or how they're thinking about their relationships in general, whether they're getting along with their partner, whether they're getting along with other people, whether they're able to communicate with those individuals. They may also have had personality changes, which caused them to change how they feel about the person they're in a relationship with. Or they may not recognize the person they're in a relationship with or not remember the kinds of things they enjoyed in a sexual experience. And possible causes of changes in sexual functioning after brain injury include damage to the brain. That's the most obvious. Changes in sexual functioning may be caused by damage to those parts of the brain that we discussed earlier that control sexual functioning. Hormonal changes. Now, damage to the brain can create a cascading effect that can affect the production of not just hormones like testosterone, progesterone, and estrogen, 
but it can affect other parts of the body as well. And these changes in hormones do affect sexual functioning. Medication side effects. Many medications commonly used after brain injury have negative side effects on sexual functioning. Some even cease the ability to be able to function sexually. So this is definitely something you would want to have a conversation with your provider about. Because some medications can be changed and you can be put on different medications that don't cause those side effects for you or cause less of a side effect. Which brings us to fatigue and tiredness. Many people with brain injury tire very easily, called neurofatigue. Feeling tired physically or mentally can affect your interest in sex and your sexual activity. If you have problems with your movement, like spasticity or tightness of those muscles, if you're experiencing chronic physical pain, Weakness, if your movements are slowed or uncoordinated, if you're having balance problems, if you're dizzy, if you have nausea, if you're vomiting, if you're not feeling well, all of those things make it really difficult, if not impossible, to have sex and to give attention to a healthy sexual relationship. Self-esteem problems can affect someone after a head injury or after acquiring some form of disability. Some people feel less confident about their looks, their attractiveness, their sexiness after a brain injury. This can affect their comfort with sexual activity. This can affect their ability to perform or their perception of how they may or may not perform. Changes in thinking ability. Difficulty with attention, memory, communication, planning ahead, reasoning, and even imagining can also affect sexual functioning. Emotional changes. Individuals with brain injury often feel sad, nervous, or irritable. These feelings may have a negative effect on their sexual functioning, especially the desire to even want to have sex or even feel any kind of emotion towards that direction at all. It can cause changes in relationships and social activities. Some people lose relationships and friendships after brain injury because they've changed. They may have trouble meeting new people. They may have trouble communicating with their friends. They may have trouble with crowds or with bright lights. They may have headaches that keep them at home. This makes it difficult to date. 
It makes it difficult to build meaningful relationships or find a sexual partner that they are confident with. That's if they find one at all. And if they already have a partner, it makes it challenging to keep that relationship active and healthy and full of life and vigor. This can be very frustrating and create irritability and depression in the person who is a brain injury survivor and their spouse as well, or their partner. So what are the barriers to sexual activity? Well, we already know that it can include physical and sensory issues, such as medical complications, but it can also include orthopedic injuries, equipment, like if they have a wheelchair, a walker, or they're using a cane, they're using braces. We discussed medication and side effects, but did you also know that medication can cause drowsiness, headaches, not just loss of libido? Fatigue and lack of stamina or interest, we talked about. Motor function is not just related to spasticity, but also related to paralysis and lack of coordination. Various level of pain or spasms, sensory tolerance and changes, hormone level and their effects, endocrine abnormalities, fluctuating hormone levels, and incontinence. It's kind of hard to feel like you're in the mood to get the mojo going if you just peed yourself or you just had bowel incontinence. That really puts a damper on the moment. Unless you're kind of into those things. But that's another podcast. Seizures. Dizziness, weakness, limited mobility. Those are all things that can be barriers. Cognitive issues, such as attention, memory problems, not remembering whether your partner likes things done a certain way or not, not remembering who your partner is, not remembering previous intimate moments. Your language and communication, decreased initiation, decreased motivation, or maybe it's the opposite way and you're very impulsive about it. Maybe you have difficulty making decisions, regulation of behavior and emotions, on planning and time management. If you're too tired by the end of the day because you've spent all your energy all day, then that needs some time management skills. So maybe you can do things differently at another part of the day when your energy is a little bit higher. Behavioral, emotional, and social issues such as personality changes, Adjustment and loss. Maybe the person has lost a limb or lost a spouse or lost a child. 
Maybe they feel lost because their new normal is not the way they used to be, and it's hard for them to adjust to that new normal. Maybe there's depression, anxiety, perception and expressions of emotion, anger, a temper. Those are all barriers to a positive sexual experience. A person can be too aggressive with their sexual activity. They may have disinhibition. They may be apathetic. There may be lability where they're crying all the time or they're laughing. This can create shame or awkward moments in the sexual relationship. The partner may be concerned that they're hurting them or it might make them feel a sense of embarrassment. Diminished self-esteem. Relationship changes, role status changes. If one person is the head of the house and suddenly they're not. If one partner is used to the other partner doing all the initiating and all the imaginative setup of their sexual experiences, and now that person is the one that's injured, that relationship change and role status change can cause a barrier to developing that sexual relationship. Transportation obstacles, residential obstacles, just the stigma about having a disability and being sexually active can all be barriers to having a healthy sexual relationship. Okay, so we've already talked about the barriers. We've talked about different types of consent. We've talked about the causes of these barriers and the causes of the sexual limitations that can be caused secondary to brain injury. So what can we do about it? So we've talked about all the doom and gloom. So where's the hope at in all this? Where's the possibility? What can actually be done to improve sexual functioning after a disability or brain injury? Well, the first step would be to have a conversation with your partner. Talk with your doctor, your nurse practitioner, or a health or rehabilitation professional about the problem so they can help you find solutions. I understand that for some people, talking about sex is incredibly embarrassing. Some people find it to be a very private and personal matter. Some people aren't able to talk openly about it at all. But it may help to keep in mind that sexuality is a normal part of human functioning. And problems with sexuality can be addressed just like any other medical problem. If you are not comfortable discussing sexual problems with your doctor out loud, maybe write down questions. Maybe send them an email or write them a letter instead. Maybe you can talk to your partner and have your partner relay the information to the doctor. 
It is important, however, to find a health professional who you do feel comfortable talking with. The conversation needs to happen. Also, get a comprehensive medical exam and screening. This should include blood work that checks a variety of labs. Perhaps your provider will want to order a thyroid panel, check your adrenals and your cortisone levels, hormones, inflammation markers, your nutritional levels, vitamin B, vitamin D, iron, selenium, zinc, and maybe even a urine screen. Make sure you discuss with your provider any role your medications may play and any adjustments that can be made to your meds that may be causing those issues. Women should get a gynecology exam and men you may need a urology exam. Ask your doctor to check your hormone levels at the very least. Something else to consider is psychotherapy or counseling. Now this can help with the emotional aspect that can affect sexual functioning. Adjusting to life after a brain injury often puts a lot of stress on not just your intimate relationship, but your emotions of being able to adjust to the new changes. If you and your partner are having problems with your relationship, it doesn't make you weak to consider marital or couples therapy. It doesn't make you less committed to each other. And it does not mean that you have failed. You may want to even consider starting sex therapy. A sex therapist is an expert who helps people to overcome sexual problems and improve sexual functioning. They have special training that can help you face and discuss and figure out a solution to those problems. You can search for a certified sex therapist in your specific area. Or you can just simply accept being celibate. It's absolutely okay if you have no interest in sex or sexual activity whatsoever. Now, this can be a complicated topic if you're in a marriage or a committed relationship, especially if you're in a relationship where you're plan were planning to have children or are planning to have children. This is where communication and understanding are an absolute necessity and a necessary aspect of your relationship. You must have the conversation. Nothing is going to be improved by ignoring this. Talk with your partner and see if you can plan sexual activities during the time of day when you're less tired. 
If you have more energy and you're less nauseous in the morning, perhaps the morning time is when you can schedule having your intimate moments. If the afternoon is better for you, then set that time aside. If you do decide to have sex and be sexually active, once you're ready to actually take that plunge, position yourself so you can move without being in pain or becoming off balance. Put yourself in a position where you're safe. So if you do fall or you do lose balance or you are in a position that's uncomfortable, you can put yourself in a position that's more comfortable without the moment being destroyed. Now, this may mean having sex in a different way or in an unfamiliar position. It may mean experimenting with different modalities, incorporating different things, different furniture, perhaps some sex toys. But again, Discuss this with your partner. Everything that you guys do with each other should be agreed upon. Also, arrange things so that you'll be less distracted during sex. For example, be in a quiet, nurturing environment that's safe without background noise. If you're having trouble becoming sexually aroused, for some couples, it may help for them to watch movies or read books and magazines with erotic images and other sexual content. On the other side of this, it's important to remember that too much artificial stimulation can also hamper the triggering of natural stimulation in some people and can also give a false sense of reality of what healthy relationships are supposed to look like or how an average person is able to perform. There are sexual aids developed to help people with disabilities. Sensual touch and sensual massage may assist in relaxing the body for the sexual experience. Increasing your social network can also increase your opportunity to form intimate relationships. You and your partner may consider going to a club or becoming involved in other social organizations. If you're single, you may consider going to one of these things on your own. There are ways to reach out. There are ways and things that you can do and things that can be done to improve sexual functioning after a TBI. And by improve, I mean things you can accept, things you can live with. So who should you be dealing with about your sexuality? Who exactly can you talk to about it? Who are these specialists? When you say, when Karen, when Karen says to you, talk to your provider, which provider is that? Well, that can be your physiatrist. That's the doctor that manages all your other providers. That could mean your primary care physician, your urologist, your gynecologist, your endocrinologist who deals with your hormones, uh, 
It could mean a behavioral health provider, like a psychologist or a psychiatrist. A psychologist does not give medications. A psychiatrist does prescribe medications. It could mean you speak to your therapist, your occupational therapist, your physical therapist, your speech therapist, speaking to a nurse or a medical assistant, a social worker, a medical case manager. These are all people that can help you facilitate communication to get help. A fertility specialist. And again, like we mentioned earlier, a certified counselor or sex therapist. Don't forget, you can talk to your partner. And if you don't feel comfortable talking to a provider or a partner, you can talk to other survivors. Join a support group. There are tons of support groups online that are free. You can find a lot of them on Facebook and other social media. There are ways that you can face the barriers and overcome the challenges that you have with invigorating your sexual experience. You have to make a shift from feeling like a victim of your disability to focusing on those things that you can control. You have to recognize that you can't change what happened, but you can manage it. Recovery is not a race. You don't want to delay your adaptation and your change. You want to get back to life. A new normal life. And that's okay. It's important that we don't dis our abilities. Sexuality is one of the most complex aspects of life. And the sexual lives of people with disabilities has been disregarded and stigmatized for too long. You have the ability through educating yourself and developing self-awareness to remove those stigmas and create a normal part or a new normal for the sexuality in your life. Or at least, at the very least, start a conversation, not just with your healthcare providers, but with each other as well. Thank you for listening to our episode today. You can find us at www.hopetbi.com. Make sure to check out the part one of two of our two-part series, Sex and Disability, 
Until next time, when we share more opportunities to offer hope.